Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, my occasional co-host, Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. Trey, how are you today? I'm doing real well. It's great to be with you again here on the Midweek Show. Yeah, it's uh, we haven't had a chance to do one of these together in, in, in geez, I don't know, in, in, in quite well, a I don't while. think we've ever done the Midweek Maybe Show Maybe we haven't. Together. I don't know. So it's, it's a first. Here we go. All yeah. right. Well, let's just jump right into it. We have a lot of great listener questions here that we can address. So yes. yeah, um, we'll start with Jill. Uh, Jill writes, I'd love a discussion of checks and balances and how the executive branch is now way too powerful. It has bodies of armed troops accountable to no one else. It can use these to round people up and imprison them with impunity and bar Congress and the media from entry. The courts are too slow to act. So clearly it sounds like Jill's focusing specifically on, you know, what's been going on with the, uh, the uh, undocumented immigrant crisis and so forth. But uh, obviously it goes to a broader policy issue as well. Uh, Trey, what do you think? Now, clearly in, in Jill's question is, uh, an assumption that the executive branch is now way too powerful because she says, well, the executive branch is now way too powerful. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'm, I guess, you know, first off, do you agree with that? And if so, how did this happen? Would you say? So, I mean, that's a great question. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a question that motivates me as a, uh, as a presidency scholar. Uh, so the answer is, is it depends on your, what, what you're going to take as being out of whack, right? So if we take a look at kind of the constitutional mandates between the legislature uh, and the executive and the judicial, what we have today is probably nothing that was necessarily in the minds of any of the framers when they were uh, writing the Constitution. So if, if your ultimate goal is to say, hey, I would like to see a balance that is in that sense constitutional, then I think you're absolutely right, Jill, that the executive branch has a lot more power than it did historically. So that leads to the question of why. And the answer on that front is, is that the executive branch has grown in its influence over time for a number of reasons. As a matter of fact, it's really interesting. You can take a look. Uh, our only PhD uh, president was Woodrow Wilson, and he actually had a, a PhD in political science. And he, fascinatingly enough, even though he'll end up becoming a president, his textbook, so he wrote a general use textbook for college classes. And the title of his generalized textbook was Congressional Government. Now, Michael, I'm sure that you can agree with me. There are no textbooks, <laughs> you know, generalized American government textbooks that have Congress in the title today. No, no. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, even these kinds of small ways, we can see that presidents have become more powerful. So your question kind of is, is why is that? So why, why do we have this shift, which is, a, a, you know, an accelerated shift? There's a couple of potential reasons why, but I'm going to focus on one so that, because we have kind of a limited amount of time. And I think the big one is, is that the cit citizenry and voters have demanded action. In other words, they want things to happen rapidly and quickly in response to their votes. And Congress, as a deliberative body, can't deliver on that in the same way that the executive can. As a matter of fact, an executive can, in some instances, take unilateral actions. And those unilateral actions have increased as time has gone on in response to demands by voters. And so presidents 
have been able to wield this voter power to take a, a variety of additional powers. Now you might say, well, what can, I think inherent in your question is what can you do about it? And the answer is, is this isn't gonna shift until when the president in power and his party, while they're in power, are willing to restrict the powers of the presidency. But the problem is, is that neither side ever wants to do that because that means losing out on something that the other party got to do. So imagine, you know, uh, President Obama, he came into the office uh, and he actually made a lot of claims that he was going to restrict presidential power. Uh, well, he did not. As a matter of fact, in a number of instances, he increased presidential power. Even in the way that uh, documents are compiled, he increased presidential power, moving from the weekly compilation of presidential documents to the daily compilation of presidential documents. So the answer is maybe a little unfortunate in the sense that uh, if you don't like Trump, there's not much you can do about it. What you'll have to kind of demand, and others like you, would be if you get a president in, if you have a Democratic president, that you take the same hardline view on his or her power. And until each party is willing to do that, I don't think that executive powers will will abate in a serious way. I probably went on a little too long, Michael. No, there. no, no. I, I, I think that's a great answer, and I agree entirely with what you said there. Just, this is just the reality we live in. We've had a shift in, in expectations and culture, and that's not going to change. The part of her question, I guess I'm going to focus on a little bit and, and, and disagree with at least somewhat. Uh, uh, Jill mentions that the courts are too slow to act. I actually think that if you take a look at specifically the Trump administration, the courts in many cases have acted incredibly quickly to basically you know, issue injunctions and, and otherwise prevent the president from doing a lot of things that he would have otherwise been able to do with, without this. And so I think the courts are sort of, you know, Trace, you're exactly right, of course, in saying that Congress just by its very nature cannot act quickly. but any individual federal judge can issue an injunction and they can act very quickly. And so if you, you know, if you take a look, for instance, at the immigrant uh, situation, there have been all kinds of injunctions that have stopped the Trump administration from doing certain things until it could be determined if those things were actually legally and constitutionally okay. And so I think we're in a situation now where the courts are, have actually been the strongest sort of backstop against executive overreach. And so that to me is a somewhat encouraging thing. Now, of course, it can take years for the Supreme Court to definitively rule on these things, but that's what injunctions are, are for, essentially, in lower court rulings and so forth. So uh, if you're concerned about executive overreach, I would say don't look to Congress for a solution. Don't look to the executive to be somehow become less res more restrained. The place you look to is, is the court's uh, issuing injunctions and kind of putting a, a hold on things until, you know, kind of whatever they can be essentially adjudicated. Now, there are, I think, two ways to look at this. You can say, well, isn't that judicial activism jumping in and stopping, a, you know, a, a democratically elected, uh, you know, president from doing whatever he wants to do? And, and I think, yeah, you could certainly make that argument. Then the other hand, I'd say, well, it also is kind of a sort of a, uh, a putting a, a slowing kind of calming hand on things. And it doesn't stop the democratic process from kind of being carried out through the representatives, but it certainly gives a moment to pause to make sure no one's doing anything that's not okay by the law and the constitution. So that's, I don't know, another way to look at it. I agree. And just as a quick 
footnote because I know we need to move on. I would suggest, Michael, you know, you talk about the the, the negativity of you know you're, you're stopping the democratic process. You always got to remember that we the intention of our system is to be a republican process, which means that in some cases we do in fact want to put stops on majority policies uh, if they are inconsistent with our legal system, which is what makes us different than any other country. Yeah, absolutely. All right, moving on. John wrote in with a, a short, but I'd say important question for us. He asks, what motivates Trump's political allies beyond short-term outcomes? That's a really good question. And I, I understand because when you take a look and, you know, every week, even this week uh, for the weekend show, we were talking, Michael and I, about, okay, you know, why, we, you know, why is the Trump administration doing this or that? And I, I kind of hear in this question, this kind of answer, like this kind of despair, like, well, why would anybody be willing to go down this, this road? And I think the beginning of the answer is, is there is a wrong assumption that many of the things that Donald Trump is doing are kinds of not popularly, or not popular. And I'll give you an example. In the weekend show, we were talking about the issue of free trade. Uh, and how we now have this kind of view from the administration of a kind of a neo-mercantilism uh, that wants trade barriers and sees interactions in a zero-sum game light. And one of the things that it kind of is a, is a throwaway I had mentioned was, you know, that was the same kinds of positions of the Bernie supporters. As a matter of fact, it, it, the, 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 the trade policies between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are not that different. So... If we are going to talk about, you know, so what's the uh, what motivates the allies? I don't think that all of the things that Donald Trump does are unpopular. And so having one's name attached to, say, some of those positions like trade, I think it's horrendous. But that doesn't mean that it's not a politically viable position. <laughs> right. And those are very different things. Right. There's something that can be right. and There's something that can be politically viable. So you're going to have to be careful here. I think some of the things that Donald Trump does, the reason it has support is because it has popular backing. So his allies see long-term electoral benefits to uh, pushing those positions where it can be advantageous. Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree with that. And the other thing I'd point out for long-term benefits is, you know, we're seeing Donald Trump appoint a second person to the Supreme Court, and there's certainly the possibility he will appoint a third. And if by some chance he you know, wins a, a second term, it's possible he could appoint four justices. You can see a scenario for that. And that, of course, has policy implications that would be lasting for many, many decades. Yes. And that's, that's been a, you know, that's a huge thing for a lot of people on, on the right. And you can understand, understand why, basically. So, but, you know, I think when we talk about Trump al political allies, we need to, that, that's a broad categorization. Obviously, there are people who are true believers who just hold, share these views with President Trump, Trump. Yeah, about immigration, about trade, that sort of thing. And their motives, of course, are very different from the folks who say, I want to catch on to this populist wave, or I don't want this wave to roll over me, essentially, and, you know, get some kind of challenge on my right and be knocked out, as, you know, we've seen many Republicans do. And so I, I think there are a variety of motives, certainly. But, and, and that's, that's the problem, of course, is most politicians, just by the nature of the way our, our political system is set up, have to consider, uh, even if they want to consider longer-term outcomes, they have to concern they have to concern themselves with uh, the next election cycle. 
And yeah. so the system forces a sort of short-term outlook that is just unavoidable, really, uh, you know. Well, and, you know, and this kind of goes back to our first question as well. I mean, you can't expect House members to have too much of a timeline beyond two years yeah. because we haven't designed them to have a timeline beyond two years. That's what senators were for. You know, you'll see senators take different kinds of positions. It's what allows McCain and others to take those. You know, they have a much longer horizon. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that makes a that makes a big difference, although it used to make a bigger difference than it initially did. Because now even senators are almost seem to be engaged in that sort of constant campaign sort of thing, you know. And it was well, they were certainly a lot more insulated because you got to remember when the framers set up the system, uh, senators weren't in fact directly elected by the people, which gave them even more insulation from uh, kind of democratic pressures, though made them more beholden to different interests in the state legislature and that sort of thing. So, all right, moving on. Let's see. Andrew asks. If the Democrats take control of Congress, are we still stuck in a stalemate or do we see Trump force the GOP to compromise to get his agenda passed? What common ground could the Democrats find with Trump? Are they so oppositional that compromise is politically detrimental? Uh, Well, I guess this question, I would have answered this question very differently in February of 2017. (laughs) Because <laughs> my hope, after I got over my just shock and despair, my hope was that Donald Trump, well, he was certainly in a unique position, less beholden to the party that elected him than any president in modern memory, certainly, which meant he had a greater degree of freedom than any president. But he clearly decided that he wasn't going to use that to forge any kind of bipartisan, you know, coalitions or compromises. And and he has been, I would argue, the most polarizing in a series of polarizing presidents. So if the Democrats take control of Congress, and I think it's it's a strong possibility they will take the House, uh, the Senate, not so much, but we'll see. Uh, there's definitely going to be a stalemate. I don't think there's going to be any sort of compromise. I think President Trump's agenda is going to be exactly as stalled as President Obama's agenda was after 2011 when he when his party lost control of Congress. There's going to be essentially slim to none in terms of common ground. The Trump administration is going to spend all of its time, not all of its time, but huge chunks of its time dealing with uh, House subpoenas and panels and all that sort of thing. It's going to ratchet up the level of animosity to what makes what we're seeing now look like pleasant by comparison. I cannot imagine what the tweets and what the responses are going to look like, but I think I think the Democrats are going to take the House, and I think it's going to get exceptionally, tragically ugly uh, from from 2019 on. And I. I'm not certainly not not looking. I'm look. I am looking forward to the Democrats taking the House to put a little check on the president. But in terms of what's going to come out in our political discourse, it's going to be pretty awful. I think so. That's my my take, Trey. Yeah, I, I'm not quite yet as confident, and it's not because I don't think the Democrats can't win, but I'm not convinced that they will win uh, the midterm elections and take over in 19 yet. So. I, I think we're still too far out in the midterm election for me to be able to kind of whip the question or say, hey, you know, what's going to happen when this happens? Uh, but let's just, you know, for the sake of your question, assume that it does. 
I, I don't think you're going to see much different than what we've seen in the past. Congresses and presidents, when we have divide, when we had divided government, generally exist in a relatively stalemate position, except for on some big issues. But even in more recent times, those big issues I'm thinking about, like passing a budget, have become more difficult. So I, I don't think there's a reason to think that Trump will make it any better or worse. Uh, I think the thing that might make it a little bit worse is simply the fact that because Trump, being anti-Trump, it is the position for the midterm elections in many ways. I think that Democratic congresspersons who don't adhere to that line will fear being rightfully electorally punished. So, I mean, if you're if, if the hope of your question is, is that we're going to come up with a list of things that Democrats and Trump are going to get together on. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point, there's been too many bridges burned for either side to say, oh, I'm going to now work with him or her or what have you. That's just that's without just, getting murdered at, yeah, the, at the polls. Exactly. Exactly. So unfortunately, we've just I think there, like I said, I, I, I think there was a, a real opportunity for that. And uh, the president and the people surrounding him decided to go in a different direction and uh, to the detriment, I think, of our nation. So, all right. Um, let's see here. Alex asks, what are your guys' opinions on the national debt? In my research, it's almost a 50-50 or 60-40 split, good or bad. Trey, what do you think? National debt. How do you feel about that? Okay, I don't know. I'm curious to see how we uh, stack up on this one, Michael. So uh, the deal for me is, as you might imagine, I'm a libertarian-leaning Republican. Uh, And so as a result, I see the national debt as being a significant problem. And now that's not to say that I think that we want to have necessarily no debt. As a matter of fact, there was one short, brief period when we had no debt uh, after the Civil War, and it didn't turn out quite the way <laughs> that everybody was hoping. But I will say that when your national debt beca- starts beca- starts to encroach too largely on your gross domestic product, you have a significant problem. And basically, the problem amounts economically to this in kind of a, a non-quantitative way. The There's basically an invisible tax on uh, citizens when you, you're, as your debt gets bigger. And that invisible tax basically is added on to your already in place taxes. And that depresses economic outcomes across the board. And I think that there becomes a point. So you, your question may be, well, where's the, the proper point? You know, what kind of debt do you want to have and what debt do you want to have? That's a question I think we could have for debate. I'm not sure if you know that's an easy question to answer that quickly. But I will say in, in broad strokes, I think the amount of debt that we have right now today and the rate at which we're racking it up falls into the category of economically harmful, uh, and that be- in, in large part because it is pulling back on what the economy could be doing minus basically this big invisible tax. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think it's important to point out that uh, we, you know, you mentioned GDP. The way to look at the national debt, I would argue, and I think most economists would argue, is not in, in a dollar term, but as a percent of GDP, because that gives you more of a sense of, if you will, your ability to sort of handle that debt. You know, if you think about it in these terms, like if I if I said I have a debt of, you know, a hundred thousand uh, dollars, making what I make as a college professor 
uh, uh, is uh, that would only be a considerable debt. But if, you know, you say, well, Bill Gates somehow managed to get a debt of $100,000 or something. Well, that's not nearly as big of a deal, obviously. Mm-hmm. So if well, you think about it in terms of your house. Exactly. Right, the amount you can take out on your house. Continue. Exactly. And if you take a look over time at our debt to GDP ratio, it kind of forms a U from around 1945 to the present, basically. And of course, it was really high in the 40s because of World War II. Then it went way down and it stayed pretty low. Then it started creeping up around 19, the early 1980s. When what we did essentially was we cut a lot of taxes, but we didn't actually cut spending. And so when you do that, you have to make up the, the difference by borrowing. Now, the weird thing about the United States, both for good and for bad, is we are able to borrow more at better terms than any other country in the world. In part, that's because we are seen as sort of the most stable economic country. In part, it's because the dollar essentially became the world's reserve currency. That gives us a special status. And that's for good, for bad. That means, you know, it. It's great to be able to get a whole bunch of low interest loans if you can invest, use that, those loans to invest in things that outproduce the amount of interest you're paying on the loans, basically. You know? So if you can get money at 2% and invest it in something that yields you 4%, you'd be crazy not to do that. right? But more and more, we're investing this money in things that don't necessarily grow the economy quicker than our debt level is rising. And so I agree with you, Trey, in that this has become, you know, we haven't seen these levels of debt in terms of GDP since the late 1940s when we were fighting, you know, a a world war. So, but the, the political problem here is, of course, that it's a lot easier to cut taxes than it is to cut services. And it's really hard to raise taxes. So, I mean, there are two ways basically to deal with this is for us to stop borrowing, well, Two ways would be essentially to raise tax, some combination of raise taxes and cut spending. That would work. Um, but politically, good luck with any of that. As a matter of fact, if you're interested in this, um, I can also see if I can find it again. The New York Times for a while actually had a um, budget calculator where you could see actually how you could affect the debt based on the, both oh, yeah. the taxes and the. Do you remember that, Michael? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, when you mentioned it, I played it, it for really a while. Cool. It was fun. Yeah. And so your point there about like why that's hard is is the big thing that's a drag now are the major services. So Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, which are going to be some. And without adjusting those, you have to have some serious adjustments in other ways to move the needle. And that's what makes this a difficult issue. Yeah. And basically, in addition to those entitlement programs, I mean, most of for various reasons, most of our defense budget is considered off the table too. And so when you talk about yes. true, what's called discretionary spending, it's like 17, 18% of the budget. And so if that's the only part of the budget that you're willing to look at, that's super hard to deal with, uh, you know, uh, uh, our enormous uh, debt by just working on that 17, 18%, you'd have to make such draconian cuts. And so yeah. that's why if you just look at the spending cuts part, and you only keep it to that 17, 18%, and you're just in an untenable position. So that's why people on the left, and I, I'm one of them, certainly argue for a series of, of higher taxes. I think that was, I think the way to go on this is to focus much more on smart tax increases that aren't going to do that much to depress economic activity. Now, that's where 
my friends on the on the right and, and Trey, you'd probably be one of them here. We we'd certainly disagree at the point at the which these taxes would depress economic activity. But that's kind of yeah. I I, I would argue. You know, I you know, I think Michael and I we agree on kind of the the nature of the debt. But I would suggest instead of simply raising taxes, that one of the things I thought George W. Bush had done well was the idea that we could reconceptualize things like Social Security where we could have money being saved, but it wasn't going through a, a federal trust fund so that we could then begin to kind of phase out some of the, the output there. Uh, but I recognize that's not going to be a, a particularly loved position on the left. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would actually, I would advocate for actually more government spending and just way more taxes on specifically financial services, because I feel like they're, uh, to a large part, they've essentially taken over the real economy. And they're these, uh, they're these, uh, vampiristic middlemen who just drain so much out of the economy for so little good in so many ways. And I would just, I would just slam the financial services industry in a huge way, which will never happen because both parties are so enthralled to wall street. It just makes me want to throw up. But anyway, <laughs> well, and that's why you guys are still the Jeffersonian Democrats, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that was Jefferson's position, but Hamilton wins out. Yeah, I hate to be identified with Jefferson in any way, but boy, I, I do hate the financial services industry for what it's done to the country. Anyway, okay, moving on. Let's see. We have <laughs> Douglas who asks, or who says, I'd like to see more discussion on practical things we can do to affect change. I love your podcast. I love the discussion. But I think most political thought these days goes to Facebook and Twitter posts instead of motivating people to do something. One of the problems with social media is that it allows us to be politically active without getting out of our chair. But the fights we have in the comments of our uncle's posts don't do anything. In fact, they are most likely counterproductive. What can and should I, as a conservative or a liberal, do that will actually help enact the policies I believe are important? That's a great question. And yeah. that's a, such a positive question, too. Uh, so I think uh, it was from Dylan, correct? Uh, Douglas. Douglas. I'm so sorry. So Douglas. Uh, Douglas, I think the answer is, is that to begin with, you need to think about the local things, the local change. So, for instance, are there candidates locally that you support and who do things that you think are positive or ones that you think need to go away at the local level your input is huge and by local i don't just mean I mean even your uh your rep your your house representative in that sense is is going to need you and so it can be showing up and going door to door for candidates it can be actually sending money you know one of the things that we constantly ask about the show the only reason this show can happen is because you guys support us on PayPal and Patreon. That, I mean, that's what makes this possible. The same thing holds true for candidates. So if you, can, if you have funds, and it doesn't take a lot of money for, say, a state legislative race, uh, and so all of those dollars are really, really important, or the time that you can have to go door-to-door -door for that candidate is really important. Uh, you know, I have done a lot of that work for, you know, both in Kentucky and Ohio. I've done a little bit in Florida. I, I had kids in Florida, so I haven't done as much. I didn't do as much in Florida as at other places, but I intend to once again do it in Oklahoma. And I would say start there and start with those local candidates who are, make, who are do, either doing what you like or target the ones you think are doing the worst and pick a challenger. 
And there's challengers. Money does not come easy and volunteers does not come easy. And it's incredible what just one person on that kind of local race, a little bit of money and a little bit of time can do to tip those races. Yeah, absolutely. I I think my answer is going to take a different sort of look at the question. I think part of the, the problem, if you will, is that we want to feel like we're making an immediate and significant impact. And the, the fact of the matter is, especially in national politics, unless you have a lot of money, that's just not possible for most people. You just, if you're, if you're saying, you know, I want to do something that makes this policy change on the national level, well, you're out of luck. And yeah. so I think what a lot of people do then say, well, I at least want to feel like I'm doing something. And that's when you get to the social media stuff, which I think, you know, you're absolutely um, uh, right, you know, that that it oftentimes is, it feels good, but it's counterproductive. And I think too many people do things that feel good, but are counterproductive. So to me, I think certainly I agree with everything you said there, Trey, but I think also it's important to try to cultivate a, a sense of, of patience and understanding that, yes, it's true. There are horrific injustices in the world, in this country, things that are going on today that I look at and I say, my God, this, this is just horrific. But, you know, I know I try not to despair and thinking that, well, there, there is nothing I can do today, but maybe I can talk about this with Trey or Jay and a couple other people will hear and then that might influence them to talk to a few other people. And then maybe they'll elect somebody to a, a local race who shares kind of more moderate views. And maybe in a few years, that person will decide to run for Congress and they'll maybe win. And I think it's important to think in terms of kind of longer term. I mean, if you want to make big change, again, unless you're incredibly wealthy, you need to think in terms, I think, of years, not days, weeks, or months. And if you can orient your thinking that way, I think you're going to be a lot less frustrated. Now, that's incredibly hard to do because everything in our society militates against that. Everything in our society says we should have change just like that. But because most of us are just not all that politically powerful, that's just how it works. That's just not realistic. And if you have unrealistic goals for what you can accomplish, you're just going to be hugely disappointed and frustrated and then maybe check out of the system. And that's the worst possible outcome. So that's kind of my, maybe it's a little more of a, of a bummer kind of answer. And I know it's less active, but, but I think it's just really important to be realistic and set your sights onto, you know, what you actually can and cannot hope to accomplish. So you don't find yourself hugely disappointed. I think you're absolutely right, Michael. And, you know, that's another way. Yeah. I mean, so listeners, you may or may not know this, but uh, I'm, I'm a, a, a practicing Christian. And I think what Mike is pointing out is actually kind of a, an element in, in much of religion, which is this idea that, look, I can't necessarily change the overall issue, but I can do it for my neighbor. Right. And I, I, that is, in fact, it's slow because just you doing it for your neighbor doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly this issue is gone. But if that inspires one other person to treat their neighbor differently, yeah, that cumulatively will have an impact. And that's how things change. I mean, even in political science, we talk about, you know, grassroots movements, you know, in kind of awe inspired terms, I think sometimes, but you forget that that means it was a lot of people doing something for one other person across the street. 
and it ended up snowballing. Uh, so, you know, it's harder when you're not on the other side of the snowball, right? Because you see the snowball and you go, I want to be on the bottom of the hill, right? Uh, but, you know, you've got, somebody's got to put that pebble at the top. Yeah, you know, I think that's a, that's a great way to, to put it. And I, I think there's another, I cannot tell you how many times on, on one of our Facebook conversations, someone's written something and I've written a response and then said, wait, before I hit send, said, now, how is this person likely to view this? Am I sort of giving this person a way to not feel backed into a corner? Am I writing this response because I want to sort of understand and, and get this other person to understand me? Or am I writing this response because I want to beat this person down because they have what I believe are incorrect views? And, and so often, my answer to myself is, yeah, I need to change some wording here. I need to change my approach because it's going to feel real good to say, God, you're such an ignorant person here. And, you know, I'm going to make fun of you because that, that feels good on an emotional level. But I pull back and say, no, how can I be more kind of welcoming and encouraging and, and, and not because when you think about people who get stuck into their own silos and their own anger at the other side, I think it's because of a million little encounters like that. Now, that's not to say I'm perfect about that. If you read our Facebook group, you know, there are plenty of times where I say stuff and you're like, man, Mike really nailed that person. And more often than not, when I think about those things and I say, you know, I really should have either not responded or I should have found a more positive way to respond. And I think that's kind of an example of that kind of thing in action that, you know, you can do maybe that might be a little helpful. I so deeply agree. All right. Um, so before we go, I just want to mention a couple of things that we are reading, listening, watching uh, uh, this week. You know, I, I, I came across uh, a recent article on marijuana addiction. Now, you may not know this, but it's a thing, Trey. Um, now, I've been a big supporter of, of uh, marijuana laws and legalization and so forth. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize, I was one of them, that this is a real thing. It's estimated that around 9% of all users are addicted and around 17% of those who start when they're kids. Now, these addiction figures are lower than they are for, say, alcohol, which is around 15%, and heroin, which is around 24%. But, and I think it's important to point out that in this debate, a lot of people are just saying, well, you know, pot's just safe and innocuous and so forth. And that's not really true. It's absolutely true, I think, that it seems to be safer than, say, alcohol and tobacco and so forth. But I think this was an interesting perspective that I haven't seen as much on, and I, I thought it was really interesting and eye-opening, uh, worth, worth reading. Another point that was made in this article is, you know, the pot today is not your father's, your grandfather's pot. Back when hippies in the 60s and whatnot were smoking it, THC levels in marijuana were somewhere between two and four percent. Nowadays, because breeding's gotten a lot better, they're they average around twenty percent. And in in like extracts, they can go anywhere from forty to eighty percent. So this can be some really powerful stuff. And we don't know, we don't have the data to know what the effects of this more powerful stuff is yet. We're going to find out. But you know, just a note of caution. I've been kind of on the bandwagon for legalization, letting states do what they want to do. But it's important to keep this part of the story in mind, too. That's why I found this to be uh, a valuable article. And I always like finding well-argued things that push back against something that maybe 
I thought I know or introduce new facts to me because it's important for me to have that sort of check on my enthusiasm. So I recommend that. That's really interesting, Michael. And uh, I know you have um, uh, uh, something you mentioned, kind of a, uh, an unusual pick. Uh, what is that? Yeah. So uh, as Michael was pointing out, you know, I am moving from Ormond Beach, Florida, all the way out to Oklahoma City. And so in between, I'm taking my family on vacation. And so one of the things, we went to the mountains. And so when we, I think this is important for everybody, uh, we, I unplug. And so that means I haven't had my devices on. I haven't been uh, keeping up with every, you know, tick of everything as it's been coming in. Oh, good for you, man. That, yeah, that's exactly. admirable. As a matter of fact, I was out on Andrew's Bald one day and we, and it was, we didn't even have internet. But uh, be that as it may. Um, so my family are doing that. But when we were driving, I have audiobooks. I love to listen to audiobooks on the way. So I was trying to pick something because my six-year-old, almost seven-year-old son was going to be driving in my car because we're driving all of our stuff and, you know, our car separately. And so we were actually going through it. So I was trying to pick something that I really liked when I was his age. So we re-listened to um, uh, Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And that has been a lot of fun. And so one of the things I want to kind of point out for our listeners is, you know, whether it be Tom Sawyer or something else, you know, go back to one of those books that you just really loved uh, and re-listen to it. It has been a lot of fun to do it again. It's been a lot of fun to do it with my son, TJ. And his, getting to kind of experience it again through his view has been really cool. And so we got all the way to me, Mom, Papa's. That's you know, what we're doing up here. And uh, when we, we were coming in, he goes, Dad, you got to go around the block because we wanted to finish the chapter, <laughs> right? So, you know, so do that again. And if you have a kid, maybe listen to that with them or read it out loud and, and kind of get to re-experience something. And so for me, Hey, maybe for you guys, it was uh, Tom Sawyer. It was for me, uh, but maybe it's something else for somebody else. But that was what we've been doing. Oh, it's an excellent recommendation. I, I like that a lot. All right. Well, that does it for this week. But before we go, I do want to thank everyone who's checked out Politics Plus. Uh, this week, I talked to Beck Dory Stein, who was a White House stenographer under both the Obama and Trump administrations for a little while. Uh, and she had some great stories to tell. It was uh, a lot of fun and I think very informative as well, talking to her. Of course, you can find Politics Plus wherever you get podcasts or at the Politics Plus website, politicsplus.us. So that's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. If you want to get in touch with us, you know how to do it. Mail at politicsguys.com. And listener support, if you can support the show, it is what helps keep us going. We do really appreciate it. Politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link or go to politicsguys.com and click on support. And also leaving, sharing the show, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps out a lot. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.